Expecto Patronum. Welcome to Pop and Lock, or should I say Diagon Alley? This is Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Get your Nimbus 2000 and have your wands at the ready because today we are traveling to platform nine and three quarters, Gringotts, and everywhere else you can think of in Potterverse. With over 400 million copies sold and eight blockbuster hits, J.K. Rowling's masterpiece may never be outdone. And here to discuss it today are three of our favorite muggles. Cato Institute's Research Fellow in Defense and Foreign Policy, Emma Ashford. At least you think I'm a muggle. Also from the Defense and Foreign Policy Department, External Relations Manager, Lauren Sander. Still waiting on that Hogwarts letter. And last, but certainly not least, Trish Beck-Peter, the Advanced Communication Coordinator at the American Institute for Economic Research. I solemnly swear that I'm up to no good. Everyone, Harry Potter is is so successful. So many people have tried to take different things away from it. it it's almost like a literary mirror of Erised in that it, it shows you what you want to an extent. Uh, but what do you see? In Harry Potter, what is the big takeaway uh, if you take the series as a whole uh, that you think people can learn from reading the books or watching all eight movies? So I spend more time than any adult human probably should in the world of Harry Potter. I am engaged with this wonderful community called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. It started with a podcast and it grew to chapters of book clubs all over the world. We meet once every two weeks here in Atlanta to read a chapter of the book, treat it as a sacred text, and try to apply the lessons to the world around us. So I think the biggest thing that Harry Potter has done for me outside of perhaps community is it's a whetstone for empathy. Being able to experience the feelings of different characters. You start probably when you're young with Harry, but as you grow older, you learn how to empathize with the villains, and you learn how to be kind and um, be brave in situations you may have never had before. So I think the real magic of Harry Potter is what it invites us to become as we engage with the text. So I, I think for me, um, I am I am of that age um, among the sort of older millennials, um, where for me, Harry Potter was something that I became aware of, um, I think just before the third book came out. Um, but at that time, I was about 13, 14. Um, and so for me, the books effectively came out when I was the same age as Harry and his friends. So as I read them, as I waited each year for a book to come out, and I also got older in the same way, um, I I found the books to be uh, sort of just a, a path where you, you know, as you get older, you start to understand that, you know, the world is more complicated than just good versus evil, that there's all this other stuff going on. Um, and I think the books sort of slowly start to reveal that over time. You know, you start with that first book that's really very childish, right? It's just, there's a bad guy and there's bad things in the world and we'll fight them. Um, and then you get, you know, 10 points for Gryffindor for doing it. Um, and by the end of the book, it's much more complicated world. And so for me, um, you know, I feel like I grew up at the same time as that story was developing. And so at the same time as I was growing up and seeing that, yeah, the world is not a perfect place and the world is a lot more complicated than just good and evil. I was also seeing that happen inside these books. Sort of piggybacking off of what Emma said um, in terms of 
the ideas of good versus evil. I think that that's one thing I really latch on to. I love when Sirius Black says the world isn't split into good people and death eaters. You know, Harry is so afraid that he's bad if he has any sort of connection to Voldemort or any sort of dark inklings. Um, and, you know, they see the villainization of Slytherin, and we'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But um, if you look at the goals of Slytherin House, they're not necessarily bad things, but it's just the way they're viewed. But I've always really loved the idea of there's good and evil in everyone. There's light and dark, and the light overcomes that darkness. And so you have to kind of have both for the world to turn. Um, and I really like that that continues on as the books progress um, in more mature, sophisticated ways. So all of you mentioned this idea of escapist fantasy. Honestly, the cool part, I think, as a younger millennial is that the first book came out, I guess it, it came out, you might be able to correct me on this, Emma, but it came out in the UK first. Um, and I believe it was in 1997. The first movie came out in 2001. So I actually didn't get into the books until the movies already existed, um, partially because I was pretty young. And I remember, I don't know if any of you had the same experience. I remember that I was sitting um, with my siblings, I have three older siblings, and we would all listen to my mom read them to us first because I wasn't old enough to read those chapter books yet. And I think that's a lot of younger millennials had that experience where their parents actually read them these books. Um, so it definitely created, like, at least for me, created memories um, with my parents and my siblings about reading these books. And we'd be like, okay, the next night I'd be like, okay, let's do uh, one chapter tonight. And it was kind of like an introduction into young adult books. And I think that was the case for a lot of younger millennials. Um, and I, I'm as young as a millennial can get. So um, I thinking, I'm thinking that a lot of first like big chapter books were actually um, the Harry Potter series. I definitely had that experience. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for my mother for standing in line at, you know, borders at midnight to get yeah. my brother and me copies. <laughs> and once I started reading them, um, we couldn't not, we couldn't just have one copy because my brother and I had to stay up all night reading it. So she would stay up and go get us two copies of the book. And that's, I have so many memories of that and waiting for it and reading it until three in the morning and then starting it over again and crying and I I just absolutely adore these books did it when the cursed child came out as well <laughs> when I was you know well into adulthood <laughs> yeah I uh what is interesting about Harry Potter for me is is like you said there's a, a definitely a sense of nostalgia with it for me as well uh Harry Potter as a series was what really I think was my first sort of spark of learning to love reading independently of of anything else uh my brother had read the first few books i think when he was sort of leaving elementary school going to middle school and i had heard someone talking about it and i tried to read them at one point on my own but never really you know fell into it and then i think i was in the third grade and it was i i think that was the year goblet of fire came out and oh, i over the course of the that year just devoured the first four books and I would sit there at my desk reading them like so much and, and it, I would do it beyond what like was assigned to us in school uh, so much so that my third grade teacher we had our scholastic book fair uh, and they had a Harry Potter 
poster that was just like hanging up that they had brought as a promotional thing. And as they were packing it up, she asked them if she could have it. And she gave it to me as a gift because nobody else was reading Harry Potter (laughs) at that time. And it was, it was this like really beautiful moment of kindness that a teacher showed me very, very early on uh, where I was kind of rewarded or respected for taking that like initiative to do something on my own. Um, so there's there's certainly a nostalgic aspect to it to the, those books and that period, but also it, it certainly was an escape, like you said, Natalie. Uh, yeah. Every time a new book would come out, it was as Lauren mentioned. You know, there would be midnight releases and people would wait in line, and it was it was. Uh, One of the few things uh, and sort of was similar to like midnight releases of movies, but for books where people would line up and it would would be this huge like collective event um, that we get rarely these days because there's so much on demand content now. Uh, But it was it was a big deal uh, when these books were released and we would always end up like three or four years in a row going on a family road trip and we would always go to New Mexico when they were being released. So we would be in the middle of nowhere in the panhandle of Texas and we would have to stop at a Walmart, you know, first thing in the morning and there would be a display and we would run in and my brother and I would both grab copies and what would normally be like pulling teeth sitting in this 14, 15 hour car ride through the middle of nowhere was suddenly like the most exciting portion of the trip because I could just sit and read my book and there was no, no distractions. And my parents were like, that's great. Go ahead and read. <laughs> and it was it's kind of it, it really is like a magical time where I, I was able to just kind of get lost in that story. So that the idea of escapism was is certainly much more apparent to me the more I think about uh, not just the stories themselves, but the context of how I consumed them. Part of what I find fascinating about this um, is, as, as well, is not just the sort of age thing, but um, we're we're recording this in America. You're all uh, born and raised in America, I assume. Um, you know, I I was uh, raised in in Britain, and so when these books started, they were really so very popular. Um, they started in the UK, but then they got very popular in America, and that wasn't really expected. Um, this kind of genre of book, you know, like the the boarding school um, story, you know. Harry Potter blew up into a big phenomenon, but that kind of story does exist in like British children's literature, and it's a, a fairly normal thing. Um, huh. And for some reason, this one really blew up in America. Um, and I remember, um, you know, it got so big that when the when the first book came out, um, there was an American version and a British version. So they took hmm. the British stuff and they translated <laughs> all the British idioms and all the words to make them American. And by Dumbed the time we get to like book three, they're not doing that anymore. Um, you know, British slang is now just normal in the books because they've become such a big phenomenon. What I really love about all of your stories is it seems the central tenet is that Harry Potter helps us love each other. It helps mm. you connect to your families. It helped you connect to your teacher. It helped you connect to your community. It helped you connect while you were traveling. It helped you connect to a culture that was outside of your own. I think that's the really amazing thing that the series lets us do. Um, For me, it let me connect with my grandfather who took me to see all the movies and we would listen to the books on tape on long car drives. And when Harry Potter World opened up in Orlando, where I'm from, going together and being able to hold his hand, walking up to Hogwarts and have our first butterbeer together. And then 
later passing the torch to my little brother when he was reading them, taking him to Diagon Alley and buying him his wand and his butterbeer. Our love for this series is a, it's a very vulnerable love, but it's also a love that opens us up to connection in really profound and deep ways. So I was kind of wondering, a few of you brought up this idea how Harry Potter's kind of about good versus evil and what can happen when you abuse power. And I was wondering if we could kind of dig into that more because I don't necessarily see this series as specifically like good versus evil. Some of the earlier books, yes, um, but I think some of the later books are much more complex than that. And I was wondering if you all felt the same way. I think the difference for me is what, how evil and good are treated. So in the beginning, it's treated as if there's this very definite binary, you know, good is good, bad is bad, you know, evil hurts people, good helps people. It's very binary. Um, and we don't really examine the motivations of bad wizards. We don't really um, examine what makes someone evil other than the confines of like murder. But over right. time, we see this gradual deconstruction of the myth of the greater good and the the nuance of evil and it becoming about choices and motivations. Um, and so we get to see a complex view of the characters where it's not they're evil because they're evil, but they're evil because they make these choices for these reasons and their choices end up hurting others in these ways. Especially with uh, what's his name? Um, sorry, the rat. Uh, Peter oh, Pettigrew. Peter Pettigrew. Yeah. Peter Pettigrew is in Gryffindor, right? He is. Yes. So it's just not a yeah. It's it's not a black and white thing. And I think we start to see that even just with an example like that. He made the wrong decisions, and he, re, you know, he saw the consequences of that. Um, and it's just because you're sorted into one house, or people think you're one way, it's how you act when you know, people aren't looking or when you're given a taste of power or something like that. Well, I think it's also a lesson in in how you can't necessarily trust other people to make those choices for you. Um, because, you know, again, at the start of the series, it's not just that there's this real, you know, black and white, good and evil frame. There's also a lot of, you know, you trust the authority figures, they know best, um, you know, you trust your teachers, you trust your parents, etc, etc. Um, and again, sort of by the by the end of the series, you know, you see that maybe you can't always trust the people that you thought were authority figures, um, or in the case of someone like Peter Pettigrew, right? He's he's led astray. He he goes off and he finds um, you know somebody that he thinks is an authority figure, um, and and you know he goes with that and and trusts them and follows them, and it leads him down this really dark path. Yeah, and I think there are quite a few other times that like you see kind of this power struggle. I mean, mind you, take the Elder Wand for example. Um, the immense power it has and the symbol of that it's like the end all be all the most the most powerful one there is and at the end a very end of the series harry decides to destroy it signifies that like he too doesn't believe even though it was rightfully his at that point after this like whole mix up of who do wanted the other person um that no one he doesn't believe that anyone should have all of that power 
Um, now, many libertarians thought this was like, oh, uh, Harry's a libertarian. He's on Team Us. Um, I don't necessarily see it that way. Um, but <laughs> maybe that's just because I'm not always looking for that. Um, but I just kind of saw it as a it's signifying that he come, came to the realization that through these seven, through the previous seven movies or through the previous books, they had spent so long fighting against who was too powerful and creating this whole, whole army essentially. And he didn't want to have to like for history to repeat itself. If someone, a bad, another bad actor were to get the elder one. And, and I think the whole elder one story and uh, um, boiled down is kind of the story about how no one can be trusted with all this power, not even Harry. But I also thought it was interesting when I was going back through some of the quotes from the movie um, in order to prep for this podcast. And I saw that in the very first movie, Professor Quarrel said, there is no good and evil. There is only power and those too weak to seek it, um, which I thought was a really cool quote that I definitely did not pick up on the first time I saw this movie way back when. Um, but I just thought that was like almost a perfect description of the power struggle throughout the Harry Potter, Harry Potter series. <laughs> um, to piggyback on something that you said about uh, bad actors and good actors in the wand, I think that's something really interesting that we see in Deathly Hallows when we get more of Dumbledore's backstory and yeah. his struggle with the Hallows. Uh, sometimes it, it's easy to assume that the idea of this story is only bad people do bad things, but the idea that even Dumbledore could be seduced by that power and seduced by really the myth of the greater good was very central to Dumbledore's struggle against lust for power. It shows us that it's within all of us, which I think is one of the really gorgeous things about this text. So what do we think about Hogwarts? Is it a private school? Is it a charter school? Is it a public school funded by the Ministry of Magic? What what are what is our take there? So it's a little weird because it's got elements of um, it's got elements of both private and public schools. Um, and to be even more confusing, in the UK, um, public school sometimes means private school, and then you say state school for the the government sponsored school. So it's just crazy confusing. Um, but Hogwarts has some elements that are clearly state or public school that are you know. Like, obviously, the Ministry of Magic plays a role. They're determining the curriculum. We see that a lot in Order of the Phoenix, right, where we see Dolores Umbridge go in and subvert that and use that authority to, to change the curriculum. So so the Ministry has a lot of control over it. Um, but equally, it's got all the trappings of a classic English or, or Scottish private school, somewhere like Gordonston that Prince Charles and his father both went to, right? So it's a boarding school. A lot of the students live on the premises. Um, you know, they they all eat together. They have a you know study hall the same. So it, it mixes elements of what like would be your average British kids' school experience um, with this more classic boarding school thing. Well, because I had already I had assumed um, for the most part, maybe I was just going off of like how how much control the Ministry of Magic has over Hogwarts, like in terms of taking professors in and out and kind of like influencing um, 
the school that I just presumed that that was through taxpayer dollars. I don't know if that's like super negative of me, but I just assumed that it was a public school, but it was just like, um, the premier school. And I think there, I don't know if you guys all got this sense, but throughout the series, I was thinking that like you had to be of a very high merit to get into Hogwarts. They didn't just let any wizard into Hogwarts. Right. Um, so well, that's actually – that's really interesting because I did some research on Pottermore. <clears throat> uh, you know, <laughs> of course I did. My, did. I, I prepared for this. Um, <laughs> and apparently in the Wizarding World, which is the official name for the Harry Potter universe that J.K. Rowling uh, has her iron grip around, um, <laughs> ever, apparently in Britain um, or – England and and there are Irish students as well. I don't want to for all of our uh, our, our UK listeners. I don't want to you know mess up exactly what the catchment area of Hogwarts <laughs> is. Um, apparently, any wizard in that is under the purview of the Ministry of Magic is automatically sent a letter to Hogwarts. Right. I think under very really? rare circumstances, yeah. are you not admitted? I think you can be kicked out, but but that's also only students in their catchment area. So for instance, Bobatton or Durmstrang are from uh, Bulgaria and, and France, and they have their own separate ministries of magic. And I think that's something that didn't really become clear to me until I really looked into it. The fact that the ministry of magic is functioning only for the United Kingdom's wizarding community. And there are other ministries of magic for other different nations. And in fact, the in the U.S., uh, around the same time, they don't have a ministry of magic, but there is actually a magical Congress that represents <laughs> and, and administers their wizarding governmental body. Uh, and, but it's still very, very vague. So there's this interesting, very subtle uh, sort of parallel of like modern nation states and international uh, relations that is sort of overlaid with the wizarding world it, it, from reading the, just the first few books, you would think that there is just a magical community that sort of, uh, you know, moves between and is sort of globalized to an extent, but it's, it's not really that way, which is what's so strange. Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically at least in the, the original books, I mean, I know there's, there's this, these new books, um, that are set in America that I'm not as familiar with, but at least in the yeah. original books, um, you know, it, basically that the strong implication, um, is that there is, there's basically three European schools, um, for magic. And it's, it's sort of effectively Hogwarts for, for Britain and maybe Ireland, although I think it might just be Northern Ireland. Um, and then there's a Western European one and an Eastern European one. And that, that sort of seems to be it. And that doesn't really seem enough unless this is just really a tiny community in some other countries. It's true. And I'm curious about the, the ratio of uh, because there's so many people in the wizard community, uh, in the magical community, it seems that it, is it a sort of like, and, and they have ways of sort of disguising their presence. Is there, is it a one for one comparison? Is it a shrinking demographic in the entire world? Is it, there's, you know, uh, three muggles for every one wizard? I, I it's, I want 
I, I want these details for an analytical purpose, but I also don't <laughs> want it to ruin the, the mirage that it's just everywhere all the time. <laughs> So the community, like the the fan community, estimates that it's about a 10 to 1 population ratio oh. in concentrated areas. But we also know that there are wizard communities, uh, villages like Ottery St. Catchpole and, um, oh, goodness gracious, where is it? Where was Harry Godric's born? Hollow? Yes, thank you, Godric's Hollow. So there are... It seems like it's not an even distribution around the world. There are probably like pockets of wizard communities where there's a higher concentration and, and then like really very scattered populations elsewhere. Which makes sense. I mean, if if yeah. you're a wizard and you can't go to the Walmart to pick up your newt's eyes, where are you gonna go? You have to live. In a community that understands you, in which you can trade, in which you can engage, in which you can build relationships with a higher degree of openness than you would if you were living in a muggle suburb. I I feel like living in a muggle suburb would be a very isolating experience for a witcher wizard. Uh, The openness question that you raise that the ability to live openly at least within your community uh of other magical people sort of gets me thinking about uh, i sort of immediately went to the open the (laughs) an open society of uh (laughs) of wizards per se and it made me think about what the goal of the ministry of magic is said to be it basically the goal of the ministry of magic is to sort of Make sure that mug- muggles don't know that witches and wizards are still very present in the country. What do you think of the Ministry of Magic? Do you think that is a good representation of its goals? Uh, do you think that it does that well? Do you think that is a noble goal that the Ministry uh, is, should try to achieve? What is your opinion uh, of the Ministry of Magic, especially from a, a libertarian perspective where we have our own sort of conceptions of, of how government should operate. So I have I have multiple problems. This is a, maybe we could say it's a layered problem. Um, so for the first few books, the ministry was kind of like very it was mystified, right? You weren't exactly sure what they were supposed to be doing. You would get like the newspapers from them, like in the movies and in the books. And you were like, ah, okay. And then they got a little bit more active come the fourth book. And obviously the later books, especially when Dolores Umbridge comes into play and Voldemort is more out there, so to speak. And I just thought from a perspective of like, what actually do they do? They didn't serve much purpose, which I guess like from a libertarian perspective is like, if you're doing, you know, if you don't serve much purpose, that's like, okay. Um, but then yeah, that tracks, uh, kind of flipping the switch at, in terms of like having a noble goal or noble cause, I think this whole separation and people have defined it different ways, but this whole separation of muggles versus wizards, um, which is, uh, uh, intention the entire series right um and that this idea that wizards are obviously above muggles because you know they have magical powers um but i think the issue about it being like a good cause is i don't i don't think they should be separated like if you look at the wizarding world they're in terms of technology they're very far behind 
Um, especially if you're looking at today's world. I mean, mind you, if the books were written in the 1990s, it's a little bit different. Um, but they don't necessarily share that type of knowledge with, they don't, there's no knowledge sharing going on with muggles because the muggles are, get their memories erased or the death eaters come in and, and kill them or get their memories <laughs> erased. Um, but they don't, they don't have any recollection of wizards. And I think there is value in having this knowledge sharing. Um, I'm not talking specifically trade, although trade would come into this as well, but this idea of knowledge sharing and maybe like benefiting off of each other, because it does look like Harry Potter's like world in terms of like technology and like setting is like somewhere stuck in like the early 1900s um, from a technology standpoint. I think what I, what I scribbled down is, that wizard kind um, seems to ad- have advanced right up to the industrial revolution. Like they're still wearing top hats and have servants and live in castles and use lamplight. And, you know, they, out of fear or um, pride, I think it is really, they don't want to, um, they don't want to interact with the humans, even though they've seen their technology, they've seen the cars, they've seen all these things, but they right. think they're better. And so I think that the government, I mean, I wrote who's better off, but I really think it's the humans. Like they might have magic, but they are, they have seen these advancements and they're choosing to ignore them. The humans have not seen the magic. And I think the government is just propagating this us versus them concept. They're just making sure that it's separate. And then people like um, Mr. Weasley are so interested in technology, like even little things that would help like poor families like the Weasleys. Um, He gets made fun of and he, you know, those people get murdered by Death Eaters. You know, it's, um, I just think it's really interesting. and, And, but that's really what the government kind of stands for. So I think that the Muggle Studies people are always going to kind of be made fun of. And it really just doesn't make any sense to to do that. They should be learning from them. So if I could add another layer, it's hinted at a couple of times that there are some deep psychic wounds in the wizarding community about things like witch hunting. It's very subtle. Interesting. Um, So for instance, there's one scene in which Harry is reading his textbooks, which never happens, by the way. (laughs) Harry never reads his textbooks after he meets Hermione. You think Hermione uh, does his homework? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hinted, or it, it says that Hermione won't do their work for them, but if they give her a draft of their essay, she'll edit it and proofread it to the point uh. where she basically does the work for them. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Side it, it's hinted that there is this deep psychic wound about how wizards and witches were persecuted and burned. It didn't actually hurt them. There was a charm that would make the flames feel like tickling. But this idea that they've been hunted and persecuted. So my bigger theory is that before the International Statute of Secrecy, before the witch burnings, uh, there were probably witches and wizards living openly to a degree in Muggle society. And this tracks in our history, our actual human history, the idea that there were healers and there were, you know, the magic people who had a way with herbs and poultices and that there was a world beyond our own that was just accepted to be a part of the universe in which we all lived. And so tracking that out, the idea is they probably lived openly and then probably religion and science and shifting ideas about good and evil in the occult changed the way the muggles viewed the wizards and the witches and put them in danger. And so 
their option was probably some people were like, well, let's just kill all the humans. Like, who cares? Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but that's probably what some people were advocating. Kill all the muggles and take over the world because we can and we have the magic and why not? Um, I mean, that's essentially Voldemort. The, oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of feelings on Voldemort and his psychology and what his psych would think of him. But okay, that, could be, that could be later. Um, but yeah, I, I think the idea was either we have to engage and we have more power than them and we will obliterate them if we have to engage or we disengage, we hide in the shadows. They stay safe, we stay safe, we stay separate. And maybe that isn't necessary anymore, but I think we have to acknowledge what community wounds and what community narrative is driving them towards separatism. And maybe it is for the good of the muggles. Maybe not for the good of the wizards. I think having... um, Muggle-born witches and wizards in the ministry, and especially in high-ranking positions, would open up the society to pens and cars and buttons and zippers. They don't have zippers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, back to the, the, the technology question, though, because I, I find it really interesting that Lauren was saying, well, you know, the wizards only advanced the start of the Industrial Revolution. But if you think about it, the way that the stuff is written, it implies that they got there hundreds of years before we did. Uh And a lot of these technological things that they don't have, they have substitutes for, right? They can travel instantly through fires. Why do you need a car? They can uh, speak to one another over long distances using charms. Why do you need a telephone? You know, they, they, um, they have versions of radios and versions of recording things. And, you know, so it's not that the technology lets them do things that they couldn't do before. It's that they have these alternatives. And then why do you want to bother adopting the version that the muggles are using when you have this perfectly good version that does basically the same thing? And, you know, I think then there's a couple of things you throw in that are like the quills, right? That are tropes <laughs> about, you know, yeah. th- that you would find them in, in other things. You'd find them in like the worst witch or things like that. Um, and, you know, so maybe they're just for color. Um, but on a broader scale, it's it's substitute technology, not not that they're behind. I do. I do agree with that, Emma. Um, I guess one thing I will say is not necessarily you're right. They do have replacements for many things. Do I think they should be writing on parchment with quills? I think, yeah. They're always spilling their ink everywhere. Like that could be fixed, but anyway. Um, and But I, I do think it's like, it, it still goes into the idea of what we're doing is better. We have a replacement. Why would we even look into a car? Like muggles are stupid. Like they had to overcome their weakness with technology. So I just think it's more of like an idea of, yeah, they can totally use flu, the flu network, but they are not even considering using cars or whatever bikes because they just think what they're doing is better. I guess that's sort of like the perspective I'm looking at it from, but I do, I mean, you have a really good point. They don't, they don't need that stuff. <laughs> I would be really interested in an analysis of the series from an, like an ability standpoint um, where, because what becomes very, very clear upon uh, reading is uh, while there are fantastical uh, characters and, and non-human creatures, uh, most of what we're observing are still humans in in how in how they act and their you know desires and their search for meaning and and community and love for one another um, and. Uh, 
they're still very, very human and driven by the same psychology and desires that muggles are. They just have a magical ability, almost like a, a, a sixth sense that muggles are simply not born with. So it it's really interesting to sort of consider a separation and almost a discrimination between the two when in reality it is it is an ability that that defines the two there there are it, it is not an intellectual or an an enlightenment that they receive or, or are bestowed as a gift so far as we know because that's one other thing that's really that's kind of left out is the the sort of study of religion in uh, the wizarding world in particular. Uh, and that's something that you had mentioned, Trish, that I thought was really interesting is obviously there are reasons for, for understanding how religion and faith has influenced the view of the occult in the muggle world and, and in our very real history, but we don't get the reaction to that and the sort of any sort of split that happens, at least as far as I can remember in the books. So I think both a, a religious analysis of, of the religion in the story, not a sort of viewing the text of Harry Potter in a sacred way as, as uh, you and your community has done, Trish, but also an, an ability sort of discriminatory analysis, I think would really bring some things to the surface that are missed on the first view. I wish there was more. The only trace I've ever seen of religion in many, many rereads is that Christmas is celebrated at Hogwarts. Um, right. We get all the trappings of Christmas, but Christ is never mentioned. Religion is never mentioned. I don't even know if anyone ever says, oh, my God. You know, Christmas in the UK, um, so so it is a religious holiday, but it's also um, a widespread secular holiday. So Muslims in the UK, for example, which is a, a huge community, or Sikhs, which is a large community, they also celebrate Christmas in a way that they wouldn't necessarily do in America. So that's not necessarily an indication of religion. Um, I, I do think, um, you know, J.K. Rowling seems to have been very careful not to put religion explicitly in the books at all. Um, but some of the ideas that that come through, um, at least from, from my background and my point of view, are just very reflective of the, the Scottish Presbyterian Church that we were both raised in, which is a very, um, a, a very, a very simple Christian faith, which is, you know, you are responsible for your own relationship with God. The church is a fairly communal affair. Um, you know, try not to be very judgmental. There aren't very many sacraments, that that kind of thing. And, and I see that in various places in the books. You know, I see um, the words that are written on, on Harry's parents' grave, right? That the death is the greatest enemy and it will be the last to be destroyed. That is, for me, a fun, sort of a fundamental tenet of my religion, just stated somewhat differently. Um, and, and I find that in, in some other places that throughout the books as well, you know, the idea that the, the dead aren't gone, they're just on the other side and we'll go and join them someday, that they, you know, that they can see us, that they can hear us. Um, you know, I, I find that the, you know, if you're familiar with what religion looks like for the author, I see it throughout the books. Um, I'm just not sure if you would if you weren't coming from that culture. I definitely didn't connect with it that way coming as Catholic. But the way you just described death is perfectly enshrined in the veil that Sirius falls through at the end of five. Another thing that when Trish was talking and Emma was talking earlier that kind of came came up kind of interestingly is that 
Trish was referring to the idea that the wizards separated, like it was kind of mutual that the wizards and muggles would separate and that it was like understood that this separation was best for like everyone. And I don't know, I don't know, I didn't necessarily ever read it that way. Um, And I don't, if I'm misinterpreting you, Trish, uh, you can go ahead and uh, tell me so. But I think a lot of people and kind of what I saw um, kind of reported online as well, kind of saw it done in like a racist type of way. Now it's not being a wizard and being a muggle is not necessarily they're not different races, but um, it being like Landry said, like very discriminatory in terms of like muggles are beneath us. And that's kind of the narrative that Voldemort pushes, right? Are he who must not be named. And now I'm doomed because I just named him. But um, but I kind of wanted to dive into, in, into that a little bit and kind of talk about Voldemort's worldview and kind of how that plays out throughout the story. Um, so I can frame how I see Voldemort seeing his own worldview, because when we look at it, it is inherently racist, and it is. But the right. bad guy never thinks they're the bad guy. The villain of always imagines themselves to be the hero. So the way I think Voldemort sees the world is that magic is a gift to be protected and cultivated. And the best way to protect and cultivate that gift is to protect the bloodlines that carry it from dilution. I'm gagging. I want you to know that I'm gagging. And I think this is gross, (laughs) but this is how he sees it. And the fear is that if the bloodlines are diluted, this gift will eventually disappear from the world. It's very Charlottesville. We will not be erased. Right. You know, to come back to um, the point Landry was making a bit earlier about the Ministry of Magic, um, something I find very disturbing throughout the series is... Um, is is I think Voldemort found it easy to subvert the ministry in the later books, in part because the Ministry of Magic seems to share some of that viewpoint, uh, you know, institutionally mm-hmm. at least. Um, you know, we we see that um, in in the later books, we see that um, there there is at least one Muggle that is aware of the wizards, right? And it's the Prime Minister. And the the implication institutionally is that the Ministry of Magic is just a ministry, right? So in Britain, um, the ministries are the equivalent of cabinet secretaries in the U.S. And so, you know, the Minister of Magic, I guess, is meant to be subordinate to the Prime Minister. But that's not how that relationship plays out at all when they actually have a conversation. The Minister of Magic is very much, you know, I am superior to you. I'm telling you what's happening and now I'm leaving and, you know, you don't get to ask questions. And it seems that that sort of institutional view in the Ministry of Magic, that there is some superiority to to the muggles, it it is similar to what Voldemort is pushing. He's just a lot blunter about it. Oh, for sure. I think he's a lot more upfront about it. And I think also towards the end, we see that the Ministry has been essentially infiltrated, right, by... um, Voldemort and his, you know, his allies, his creepy allies. Um, right. But I and, think- and my point is, my point is kind of like, he wouldn't have been able to do that if there wasn't some support inside for those sentiments. Right. And then, which is what ultimately leads up. So he has support for his ideals from people who are presumably a pretty high, pretty, pretty high status within the wizarding world. And then we get in response to like backlash to them, we get Dumbledore's army, um, which is essentially comes up in the uh, 
it starts what in this oh trish is gonna know this better than me does it, it start in order of the phoenix and the oh it starts <laughs> in the order of the phoenix okay i thought i was yep. gonna be go one book later um but i think it's interesting because that idea of dumbledore's army has has jumped over into our world um and i say that in a way that uh, at protests or at rallies there have been many many reports of people holding signs and other types of um signs and stuff like that uh that say like we're we're representing dumbledore's army which is interesting because that that's kind of what they view like are so the millennials older younger millennials view as like a symbol of like pushing back a symbol of like this is this is our voice and i just i just think that's super cool it kind of sucks that that's the way it comes out but like i think it's super cool that that that's something that we related to in the book and then we come and see it in like in practice harry potter's been a tool for a lot of social justice um that i've seen in the last few years uh, if you're familiar with the work of the harry potter alliance they're a pretty big nonprofit. they span six continents in 35 countries they they do a lot of fundraising in that capacity. They also have the Granger Leadership Academy for fan <laughs> activists, which I think is great. That's great. <laughs> um, the Harry Potter community that I'm part of raised $58,000 for Raices to help families trapped at the, uh, the Mexican-U.S. border. It, it has become a voice for activism. Um, to be, to play devil's advocate or he who must not be named's advocate, maybe, I guess, in this <laughs> to context. Play the Death um, yeah, playing Death Eater. Yeah, yeah, my my comment to that was just um, on the other hand, you can kind of, and I wrote this in the notes, I think Natalie saw it, but you can kind of parallel it also to people, to the gun debate. And I'm not saying whether I am pro Second Amendment or against it, that's, that's not my point, but. They say specifically, especially when the ministry gets involved, that they're not being taught to defend themselves and they are not allowed to defend themselves and that the government is trying to make them weak, which is usually never a good sign. And so part of Dumbledore's army is them taking that into their own hands and secretly finding a way to learn to defend themselves and use the tools that they have to defend themselves. So I just think it's funny because it has such a social justice, like, uh, uh spin in the real Undertone. world but at the uh, like in the same uh vein it also has sort of this libertarian we the government needs to not tell us what to do especially in turbulent times we want to be able to take care of ourselves and at the end of the day if we're not allowed to do it people are going to find a way to to do it so i just think it's kind of funny there's sort of two ways to look at that exact group of people i i think dumbledore's army is a well-ordered militia Yes, exactly. <laughs> it does come back to this point about like authority figures, though, because I, I feel like part of the Dumbledore's army thing is saying, well, you know, there's no authority figures that can uh, that can help us now. Ironically, then they name themselves after one, but <laughs> we're going to have to do it for ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and I, I, but I do think that's why so many people of our generation have have taken that message and taken that name, um, you know, when they want to push back on the government, when they want to push back on on sort of things they very much disagree with in, in public policy, they're saying, well, we're going to, you know, 
we're going to come out and do this for ourselves. And it's a it's a message. It's a it's a way of making it relatable to people who perhaps don't necessarily engage with the policy process in a regular behavior, but read Harry Potter to their kids at night. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also something that that's not something I would have picked up on when I was younger, having uh, either my mom read it or myself read it. But now that you go back and analyze, you're like, oh, okay, like there are so many more layers in these stories than you would originally think about, um, especially over your first read through. I'm actually considering now rereading them all um, after this discussion. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But just because you look at it, you look at it from a different lens. And now like that, uh, we're in like different stages of life than when I first read them. It just, it's gonna, I'm gonna consume it in a very different way. So let's go with what's your favorite book or your favorite movie in the series? They can be different. Let's start with Trish. Um, my favorite book is probably Order of the Phoenix because I do love to see that uprising. Um, and it also gives us like the beginning of Book Ginny, and Book Ginny is so badass and awesome in order to yeah. start the order of the Phoenix. I hate movie Ginny. I'm sorry, Bonnie Wright, but I hate movie Ginny, but Book Ginny <laughs> is just such a badass in order of the Phoenix. Um, but my favorite movie is probably Sorcerer's Stone because of where what it allows me to feel experiencing it over again. And because Christopher Columbus was a lot more uh, adherent to the text than some other directors, <clears throat> Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> <laughs> I think my um, so so my favorite uh, book is um, is the, is the last book is is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, conversely, my least favorite movie is is the second Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. I really, really just hate what they did with it. I hate the ending. I don't think it's true to the book at all. And it really bothers me. Um, I do like number three in terms of the movies, uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. I, I think that, that was a good um, movie. Some- I think some liberties were taken, but I actually think it improved it a lot. Um, un- unlike some of the other movies. Yeah. Um, that's so she took, she took my favorite movie, but, uh, the third <laughs> is my favorite movie. And I know that that is, uh, sort of a different one for a lot of people because of the director was different, I believe for just that movie. Um, but I just love the symbolism and the darkness and the birds and the way they filmed it. And I just think it's, so interesting. It always keeps me engaged. And I love the time loops because you feel like the movie's over and then you get a whole new movie again, sort of. Like, it's so exciting. Yeah. Um, so that's always been my favorite. Um, and books wise, I think Half-Blood Prince is my favorite. Um, I don't really know why. I just think I love trying to figure out who it is, you know, like you have your ideas, but and kind of seeing Harry sort of hide this and he's so interested in what's going on and it's really consuming him so I just love that whole storyline um and it's just a, it's an exciting book as well um there's a lot that goes on especially at the end um and it sets up a lot for the next uh book as well my favorite book hands down has never changed it will always be Goblet of Fire um mm-hmm. I love how it it expanded the world 
Um, and you got you got I feel like a little bit more of just outside of uh, of what the ministry was when you got the other schools. I thought the Quidditch World Cup was this really cool way to start the story. The Triwizard Tournament is this awesome like nested raising of stakes within it. Um, I, I just, I, and then it's also, I feel like the, really the first time that we sort of start to see the characters go through the sort of painful parts of, of adolescence amongst each other. I feel like they, they have a lot of like kid problems in the first three books and obviously much bigger things with like, you know, good and evil and like, you know, saving the wizarding world and all. <laughs> but I feel like the the tension between, you know, Hermione and Ron uh, and, and like the drama of the Yule Ball, I just eat oh, that yeah. <laughs> up. Um, and and it, it, it sort of reminds me of, you know, being young and that like awkward uncomfortability more than any of the books had at that moment. So it always really stuck out to me. Yeah. Movie wise, having just rewatched them all, um it's tough i i like goblet of fire once again i don't know if it's my favorite though i also really like prisoner of azkaban and i think it's the darkness that draws me to it the the palette changes pretty drastically with it and obviously with the different director that's that's to be expected but it's sort of kind of all the other movies i feel like kind of tailored themselves after it um from that point on and i don't see as drastic of a shift from that point um it's not perfect but specifically the scene with um lupin and sirius black and Ron, Hermione, and Harry, and Peter Pettigrew, and Snape, all in the Shrieking Shack when they reveal oh, who yeah. Wormtail mm-hmm. is. It is a, everyone is at 100%. It is amazing. No one is resting on their laurels from an acting standpoint in that scene. It, Gary Oldman, like, you think he, like, the turn that happens in the middle of that scene where you think he's about yes. to, like, kill Harry and he's this crazed <laughs> lunatic and then you reveal and you understand that all of this emotion is is born by his love for Harry and his family. It, it really just ch- changes the way it, it, it you see everything in that moment. And there are all these conflicting sort of dramatic ironies that you understand looking back at that scene with Snape and his conflict with them uh, sort of coming in and threatening and his loyalties going on. It, it just, it's a really complex scene and it kind of, it, it, it was a high point in that movie for me that I just remember. So that's kind of sticking out as my favorite. Yeah. I, my favorite book is Goblet of Fire for similar reasons that Landry uh, Landry pointed out and also a Goblet of Fire is my favorite movie, but for different reasons, because I on on film, you can finally see that like the characters are growing up. And like not only like literally like Harry Harry uh Daniel Radcliffe no is no longer like two feet tall and looks like a five-year-old. Um, but like <laughs> it's one of the uh like first movies where like I also felt when I when I first watched it, um, that like I was growing up with them. And I know that, that I, there's like this sentiment for like a lot of different movies. Like um, recently they've been talking about how our generation grew up with Toy Story, like between the years that the Toy Story movies came out, same with like Monsters, Inc. Um, but I just really thought that it, I 
when I first saw the Goblet of Fire that I could relate to it the best because I I could kind of understand their growing pains, if that makes sense. Um, and that's also probably the movie I've seen the most, like in terms of re- repeatedly, um, which I, I'm not going to say it gets better every time I watch it because there's definitely a threshold that it's gotten to that like when I rewatch it now, it's just like not as exciting. Um, in terms of like rewatching the movies... I get most excited to watch the first two or three uh, again, uh, partially just because I haven't seen them as often. And, um, but they're not necessarily my favorite movies. So we can't do this podcast without asking what Hogwarts house each person would belong to once we got that lovely letter and packed up all of our bags and went to go get sorted by the lovely sorting hat. So Please give me your best pitch for what house you would be in in Hogwarts. Um, I'm a Ravenclaw with Gryffindor tendencies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I relate very. I have deep. a rising Gryffindor with a moon <laughs> Ravenclaw. <laughs> uh, if you want to make it even more complicated, we can add in the idea of aspirational housing. The idea that you are sorted into the house not of who you are now, but uh, the best version of yourself that you could become. And then I would would want to be a Hufflepuff. I would want to be a Hufflepuff. I'm not. (laughs) I, I, you know, I mean, obviously everybody wants to be in Gryffindor. I'm pretty confident I would end up in Ravenclaw, um, you know, just because I've spent my entire career doing book learning stuff. Um, I do have a sneaking fear, though, that I might actually be a Slytherin because I I tend to be a bit conniving. And so I would happily accept Ravenclaw if it meant I didn't get sorted in Slytherin. (laughs) (laughs) I, if I'm being honest with myself, would say Ravenclaw um, because as well, I, you know, I... (laughs) We all work at a think tank or, or the Cato, Cato ones of us do, you know, I, I value education and I really enjoy it. I also love wit. I'm very sarcastic. Um, but that also, um, sometimes I feel like I would be in Slytherin, which a lot of people are like, you're not evil. Why would you say that? But again, like I was saying at the beginning, Slytherin is not necessarily bad. The values are ambition, cunning, and resourcefulness, which feel like I have a lot of people in DC have you kind of have to have to do well here um you know and and so it's almost kind of my aspirational house maybe um but I definitely see the tendencies I just obviously wouldn't want to be in Slytherin while there's such sketchy characters there so in that case I would probably want to be in Ravenclaw um because I think they're all smart but I think they all be secretly a little bit um a conceited maybe so that's kind of why i've never really wanted to be in ravenclaw but that's probably where i would be <laughs> i'm so glad to be surrounded by my ravenclaw brothers <laughs> yes. and sisters <laughs> uh, wit beyond measure is man or woman's greatest, greatest treasure, treasure. <laughs> get your claws up caw. Um, i don't know what sound ravens make but i'm gonna say it's caw. yeah um and it just uh, makes me feel so good. I I think there's a part of me. There's a little bit of a a a, a goofiness of a Hufflepuff, but I think that goofiness more manifests in the sort of out loud qualities that uh, Gryffindors might have. But I think deep down. Uh, in my sort of introverted uh, self, I think I would do best in Ravenclaw. 
Uh, plus, I think the blue brings out my eyes. So I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't think red looks good on my pale skin. So if the sorting hat were talking to me, I would be like, please, I'm, I'm not a summer. <laughs> please, I'm not a summer. I think, um, I think every libertarian thinks that we're a Ravenclaw, but everyone else <laughs> thinks that we're a Slytherin. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask. I was very curious if anyone thought, like, is there, would all people who self-identify as libertarians be sorted into the same house? And if they did, which one? And I think you've, you've pretty much nailed it. <laughs> yeah, but I don't, I don't think I'm a Ravenclaw. And here is why. Oh, I, okay, oh, so I, partially... I, you, Natalie, you, I'm just going to, you are a Gryffindor to a I guarantee. You she don't is. even have to tell. Anyone who has listened is like, Natalie's a Gryffindor. Natalie's so, Gryffindor. I am not a Ravenclaw, but I would say that, like, I have some Ravenclaw, like, undertones, yeah. if that's, <laughs> if no, that's possible. Is that, mm, are those like, notes of Ravenclaw? Notes of yes. Mm. <laughs> um, and if we're going off fashion sense, like, my skin tone does go pretty well with Gryffindor colors. But um, I do think I am a majority of me is Gryffindor. I have a slight Slytherin of, in me, partially just because I'm the youngest of four um four siblings in my family. And I really had to develop my sense of uh, sneakiness and cunning in order to, you know, win, win those battles when I was younger. So I do think there is a, a, a slight sneakiness in me. Um, but I don't necessarily I don't when I see myself, I don't see Ravenclaw at all. <laughs> but you know, maybe that'll change as I grow older. And now the part of our show where we get to explore all of the other media and content that we've been consuming during this time of social distancing as we record this. This is Locked In. Trish, Emma, Lauren, what have you been doing with all of this time that you've been at home? What have you been consuming? TV, movies, books, games, hobbies? What are you locked into? I've spent a lot of time recently with the Twilight series. Um, I know everyone loves to hate it. No, I, I, it, I started as a, as a love to hate for me. It has turned into an unironic love. I will watch those <gasps> movies. Oh my gosh! So yes! when, when, Car when what happens to Carlisle at the end of Breaking Dawn? No, 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 no. I'm watching that tomorrow. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say what it. I'm not going to say what happens. I'm just going to say, whew, I. My heart was racing. He's fine in the books. He's <laughs> fine in the books. My fingers are... Here's the thing about Twilight for me. I think our culture automatically hates anything that is meaningful to preteen and teenage girls. I think our culture loves to demean and belittle anything that girls of that age feel pressure, feel strongly about. I think uh, preteen music is always written off. I think preteen books are always written off. I think male authors are allowed to churn out a new action book about a white male heterosexual hero every year and no one gives them shit about it but twilight is somehow hated because teenage girls like it it's not a well-written series the writing is terrible i will not writing. <laughs> but the story is good and the characters are good and i think moving past this cultural framework where we hate what teenage girls love will allow us to empathize more with people who we and to culturally dismiss. So 
Team Twilight, uh, but not Team Edward or Jacob, because I think that's stupid and derivative, and we should all support Bella and her choices. Wow. Well, uh, you know, uh, the the former former teenage girl in me is still a little appalled. Um, you know, <laughs> I I just want to go on record as saying Twilight is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, it is it is terrible. Like, horrible. I love unironically how terrible it is. <laughs> but uh, in, t- in terms of of locked in and what I'm what I'm locked in with. M- mostly I'm locked in with two kids under two, so I don't have a lot of time. Um, <laughs> that but I, you know, I I finished reading the third one in John Scalzi's series, The Collapsing Empire, uh, the oh. third book. Um, that was excellent. I really enjoyed it. It's about a it's it's basically about a space empire, um, and they suddenly discover that the technology that lets them transit between space systems is failing. Um, and you know, there's this long-term collapse coming. All of humanity is going to die. What do they do about it? Um, and so it's clearly meant to be an allegory for climate change. Um, but it, in the present moment, it seems a lot more applicable. So I really, I really enjoyed that. That was really great. Um, and then uh, in the rest of my time, I've been working my way through um, replaying Horizon Zero Dawn which is uh, a really great game uh, for if you you like sort of first person adventure RPG games. Um, It's a um, it's it's mostly an action adventure, but it's it's set in a post-apocalyptic, I guess, earth. We don't really know. You know, there's this whole story that unfolds basically as the main character tries to not only like find her own way and solve her own story, but also figure out, you know, what the hell happened to cause the apocalypse? Why are there all these ruins all around? Even though she lives in like a tribal society, why are they living in the ruins of you know our society from today? Um, and what caused the apocalypse? And it's it's really great. So I'm enjoying that. Very cool. So I am a bit of a TV show crazy person. Um, I <laughs> tend to rewatch uh, TV shows, um, and I'm, I've been self isolating with my neighbor downstairs, and so. He comes up and gets coffee every day for my coffee maker because he doesn't have one. But anyway, he's always like, how many times have you seen this show? How many times have you seen this show? <laughs> like, I rewatch the same stuff. So I have been rewatching. I just rewatched Supernatural all 14 seasons. Good show. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And um, I'm rewatching uh, Lucifer. Um, I rewatched Another good one. The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Um, I'm sensing a theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I just finished watching. He and I have started doing like theme stuff, so uh, we're starting at Hitchcock movies. Um, but so far, we've watched the show Luther, and we just started The Killing, um, and we watched Ozark. So we've got oh, a lot done. Um, and I just finished reading Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde, and I'm starting on The Bell Jar today actually oh nice so yeah lots there's of lots of themes going on i i like the dark stuff which is why i love harry potter <laughs> obviously um but yeah it's been it's been keeping me entertained i always have something on in the background um i can't really focus without like some conversation in the background so i um have been doing a few things so i watched all of upload on amazon prime very good kind of a dark Dark undertones, but comedy, like it's a, like a lighter show, if that makes sense. I mean, it's based off of someone who, who, who passes away and uploads his consciousness, um, to this like futuristic, like 
AI heaven, essentially. And um, that was really good. I got through it in like a day and a half. Um, And then much to my boss Aaron's lovely pushing of me watching Mr. Robot, I have started Mr. Robot. I'm only on the fifth episode. Uh, He claims it to be the best show of all time and will never give up, give that up. Um, and Landry also likes it a lot too. So I just started that. So I don't have many reviews on it on the reading front. I've actually been reading a lot because I, um, I've been helping nannying a family for two years now. So I've been splitting my time between here and there, and then we're not seeing any other people. Um, and I read the girl on the train and now I'm reading woman in cabin 10, which are both oddly dark and pretty much the same story they're like murder mysteries female main character strong female main character um and my next book i'm hoping to do um overcharge which is one of kato's books um it's a healthcare book i've had it on my shelf for a while i just haven't had a chance to open it yet um but one other exciting thing i have also become addicted to jackbox games yes um, which if you play on steam and i have probably uh, so far this week i think i've played like five or six hours of trivia murder party and i Quip love Lash. that game oh my gosh i play uh, that with my parents every friday so and i i paid twenty dollars for them um, so We've been having a blast. Me and my family have been playing that. Me and my housemates um, have been playing that. So that's a lot of fun. If you want to do like games via Zoom with people, um, you can just screen share. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, for television, I I haven't been doing as many like prestige TV shows just because I haven't felt the need to commit to much. I started Killing Eve and uh, I, I'm about three episodes into that show. and I like it. But I haven't gotten further than that. Um, there are two. I hesitate to call them reality because they're they're there's not much about them that's very real, but they are delicious to watch in a trash <laughs> TV sense. Uh, the first one is on, uh, I believe it's History Channel, and it is American Pickers. Oh yes, uh, and it's two yes. like junker antique dealers that own an antique store and they go visit these people in like rural areas and they go through all of their junk and antiques and they buy stuff from them and it's the perfect just put it on in the background stuff because they're just climbing through barns and like haggling over like old rusty fans and oil signs that they're gonna like like turn and, and sell to someone and they have their banter and they're goofy <laughs> I, it's it's good fun the other even trashier television show that i love my fiance told me about it's uh it's a little tv show on the bravo network <laughs> called below deck yes Ooh. i watch that too <laughs> oh my it, gosh it's so good. It's about yachties, the staff of uh, luxury yachts over the course of a charter season and all of the drama that goes down uh, between them while they're trying to please these like seven star charter guests. Delicious drama. And it is phenomenal. Oh my God. It, it's great. I love it. Landry, did you know um, that there's multiple like... Oh, oh, we've watched okay, Mediterranean. We've watched the classic one. We just started Sailing Yacht. We've watched multiple seasons. We just got the Bravo app. Yes. 
<laughs> it's been good fun. Good. Uh, I also have been uh, painting a lot of miniatures for my Dungeons and Dragons campaign. <laughs> yeah, that's so exciting. I actually have two campaigns going right now. Are you using Roll20? Uh, or are you meeting in person? Have, we were doing in person and we started that way. Um, for one of them, but we, and we tried roll 20, but it just became kind of cumbersome. So we just do it over Google meet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will do like a Google slide that everyone can get on and see that. And I kind of move like little tiles around for, if we use a battle mat. I love and it. then I have a, a wild mount campaign because I'm a big fan of critical role. Um, and we'll be playing that tonight as well. Uh, but I've been painting miniatures for that for something tactile to do with my hands. Uh, and I've never done that before, so it's been a fun hobby. We've actually been considering changing the uh, libertarianism.org team meeting each week to just a D&D game. <laughs> I'll do it. You guys I'll do hiring? it. I'll run a game for you. <laughs> God, um, I miss all this also... stuff. Guys, never had kids. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I also have been playing, uh, I just got a board game called uh, Fog of Love, which is really cool. And it's a two-player board game, kind of storytelling role-playing game, where you and the other person basically go through the stage of a romantic relationship between two people. And you each have, like, goals that you randomly draw. And you're trying to, are you, like trying to like self-actualize or are you trying to be in a loving relationship? Are you trying to be equal partners or does your character feel like they need to be dominant? And then you play through a bunch of scenarios and say like what your characters would do and how you fell in love. And at the end, you may not necessarily stay together. Part of the game is finding out whether the other person wants to stay in a relationship with you based on the, like the happenings of, of the story. And it's just really shockingly fun it's billed as like a romantic comedy board game which at first i was like what but it's it's a lot of fun and it's also just a really beautiful board game it's really well made so i highly recommend fog of love uh and i've also been playing fiasco which aaron uh our editor at libertarianism.org taught me it's another storytelling collaborative game of crime gone wrong in the vein of fargo or burn after reading uh people with high ambition but very very bad luck uh and it's it's a lot of fun and a sherlock holmes game where you solve mysteries called sherlock holmes consulting detective i just bought so i'm trying to do things without screens as much as possible um considering i have just been on them so much landry how's your animal crossing village doing oh yes is it's going pretty well i just built an infinity pool uh (laughs) in the back and uh we are officially uh cliffside living up at the top behind our newly uh, moved museum uh we we just kicked out our first villager uh (laughs) it was not the one we wanted to kick out but we got a cute little frog named lily um lily is lovely it's I really, I, I was searching for months for a cowboy hat for my character, and I finally got one. Now I just need a cutting board so it can complete my kitchen. Don't we all? <laughs> Thanks for listening. If we got a crucial piece of wizarding canon wrong, or if you have something you want us to cover on the show, you can slither into our DMs on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E, Pod. 
Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.